Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm one of your hosts, Nick Hayden. And I am the other host, Timothy Deal. Welcome to episode one. Our premise here is that we will watch a movie from each decade, from 1922 on till... The present. The present. Well, almost the present. The past 100 years. Yes. I guess that's true. We're not watching one that came out this year. <laughs> we could. I mean, we could, but yeah, that's that's not. We're doing we're doing older stuff. At least ten years old. And so this episode, we are covering Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. So, Tim, we would like to start our Wikipedia rundown. So, when was this? The year is 1922, 100 years ago, so celebrating our 100 years of Nosferatu. If you listen to our test episode where we talked about A Trip to the Moon, which came out in 1902, we've gone forward 20 years. The film industry is much more established. Uh, since then, movie studios have been formed, including some that are still around today, like Warner Brothers, Paramount, and United Arts. Movie stars have uh, become celebrities with their own followings and scandals. Celebrities such as Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Fatty Arbuckle, Harold Lloyd, a number of other comedians. I, I'm more familiar with silent film era comedians than I am regular actors. Okay. So uh, apparently Mielis was right in that narrative stories made people come to the movies. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, the top grossing film of 1922 was Robin Hood, starring Douglas Fairbanks, which probably would have been the movie we would have done if it hadn't been for Nosferatu, which probably has a little bit more of a film prestige. Mm-hmm. But I believe, if I remember right from Wikipedia, that Robin Hood made $2.5 million in that year, which I don't know what the adjusted for inflation is. Sounds but, good. That sounds good. So have you seen that one? I have not actually. Really? No. Well, maybe we'll have to put it on a list for a different season. Yeah, some someday uh, at some point. But I know the, the Errol Flynn one is the one I'm always talking about. Anyway, other notable events in 1922 in the world of film. On June 11th, 1922, was the premiere of Nanook of the North, the first commercially successful feature-length documentary film. And on November 26, 1922, The Toll of the Sea debuts as the first general release film to use two-tone Technicolor. So what does that mean? What does two-tone mean here? It's a certain process. I'm not going to be able to explain it very well, but like... Imagine like the there's two strips of different types of color that are mixed in on the actual literal film. So it's not full color yet. It's not full color, at least not quite as vibrant or as precise as Technicolor would become to known as. It was still kind of an experimental thing. Black and white films would remain dominant thing, in part because of uh, the Great Depression when that comes in in the 30s. I mean, it was still very expensive at this point. Technicolor might have become more commonplace during the 30s if it wasn't for the Depression. Okay. So film has evolved a lot in the last 20 years. Yes, and this is be very evident when we get talk more about this movie in particular, but you'll see lots more uh, close-ups. Cameras is not just relegated to one play, one static shot for the whole scene. You can actually, and this film actually takes the camera on location, which was kind of unusual back then, but uh, we getting to see more of that sort of thing. So tell us, what is this movie, Nosferatu? This movie, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, or in the original German, I will give this a, a try, Nosferatu, Ein Symphonie des Grands. 
So French last time, German this time. Very nice, Tim. Yeah, I know. Most of our movies this season will be uh, American Hollywood movies, but we started off with two foreign films for whatever reason. Um, it's directed by F.W. Murnau. This is a German expressionist horror film. And we'll talk a little bit more about German expressionism in a minute. But it is about a real estate agent, Thomas Hutter, who travels to the castle of Count Orlock to complete a sale. While there, he encounters many clues that indicate Orlock is a vampire who has a keen interest in him and his wife, Ellen. When he sees Orlock leave the castle on a wagon full of coffins, the terrified Hutter escapes the castle to return to his wife. However, Count Orlock is headed for Hutter's hometown, and wherever Orlock goes, death seems to follow. So, a classic vampire film, or one of the first. Really. One of the first vampire films. Maybe, I'm not sure if it's the first, but it's certainly considered one of the most influential. The first Dracula film, for sure. And you may notice I didn't mention Dracula, but that's because this story is highly inspired, some might even say ripped off, from Bram Stoker's Dracula novel. Same basic story. They've filed off the serial numbers, as the fan fiction writers would say. <laughs> so what are some of the like special things someone watching this movie might notice? Well, let's talk about the format a little bit. Oh, that's so, okay. Yeah, this is not one of those fancy schmancy Technicolor movies. This is black and white, but it is tinted with basically a, a single color. Think uh, when we say a, a film has been tinted, usually there's like some sort of like... Uh, it's like you're wearing glasses with like blue glasses or rose-colored glasses. Yeah, yeah. And they, they use this to differentiate different times and places. The nighttime scenes are tinted blue. The daytime scenes are generally tinted. And sometimes the indoor scenes, if there's like candle lighting, yeah. kind of a yellowish-orange tint. Um, if it's dawn or sunset, it tends to be tinted red. But it's really helpful because they needed a lot of lights to film back in those days. So the having these different tents helps you really differentiate your time and place. And it worked really effectively, I thought. But we'll, we'll get more to that. Yeah. Again, this is a silent film. The original score was performed by an orchestra at the Berlin premiere. Um, but apparently most of the score has been lost. We watched a version on YouTube that had an organ accompaniment, uh, I think composed in 1991. Probably not the best way to do it. I did look up. Uh, I had been given actually Brian, who yeah. we've worked with before on the our main podcast, The Real Trains of Thought. He had given us a copy of this film that he had recorded from TCM, yes, Turner Classic Movies, and that had a um, more classic orchestral classic sound effect. Sort of yeah, I think it's mentioned on Wikipedia. Let me see if I can find the name of the person who did it. James Bernard. And honestly, I think that version would have enhanced the story a lot. Yeah. Like it, it was uh, the organ was kind of your classic spooky organ music, but even my wife who plays organ was getting tired of it by the end. Like for a while it was kind of nice and then it yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. So it, and it was all kind of samey. It was also part of the problem. So if you go out and watch this, look for one of the the versions with uh, James Bernard's score. I think that was probably a better choice. Lengthwise, this is runs around 63 to 94 minutes, depending on the transfer version. Again, uh, if you listen to our last episode, you know sometimes film rates weren't quite, I guess, they may not have been quite uh, standardized at this point. Certainly because this movie fell into public domain, there have been different English versions of it. And that I'm sure that's also part of the problem here. So yeah, so those are some of the details.
So, Tim, we know what the movie's about. So, who cares? Why is this famous? Well, the articles I was looking at didn't say much about how financially successful it was when it first came out, but it must have been enough that caused the Bram Stoker estates to sue for copyright infringement. Yeah, it is Dracula. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a basic story. I, I did look at the synopsis of Dracula because I never actually read it. Did you ever read the I novel? I have not actually. It was, it's on my short list now after watching this film. Sure, sure. Well, I, yeah, this has certainly kind of a Cliff Notes version of it. The guy going to the castle to do business and the vampire chasing him home essentially and going after his wife that kind of stuff it was such a flagrant abuse of copyrights that so the court actually ordered the destruction of the film negatives oh wow but however at that by that point the film had already been distribu- distributed worldwide so that is why we have have it today so no order 66 <laughs> no the order 66 was not successful here Apparently, German critics at the time liked it. American critics at the time were more mixed, but it has made a lasting difference after that. Okay, so what kind of difference does it make here? Like I said before, it is considered the first Dracula movie, so that means it influenced many vampire and horror movies after it. It's actually the first story, a lot of people state that it's the first story where sunlight is lethal to vampires. That is not in the original novel. It's very interesting. That's an interesting choice. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but it's one of those little details that you would see and other vampire stories after this. Yeah, constantly. I think also some of the the iconography of him, like the shot of him like rising vertically out of his coffin, yeah. has been duplicated many, many times after that. Even if you have not seen this movie, you've seen that shot um, in other movies. Yes, <laughs> someone copying it, basically. It brought F.W. Murnau into the public eye. Uh, he has other German films, including The Last Laugh and Tartuffe, which is an adaptation of a play. Um, he later immigrated to Hollywood, where his other most famous movie is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which won multiple Oscars, and some people would call it one of the best silent movies ever made. Oh, wow. So we will definitely watch that if we're still making podcasts when we get to, I think that was 1926. Okay, so in four years. Yeah, yeah. So okay. hopefully we'll, we'll get to that one. Because I have seen that one at an actual silent movie theater, and it is a classic. But yes... This movie in particular certainly has lots of imitators, including the 2000 film Shadow of the Vampire, which kind of reimagines the behind the scenes making of this film, imagining what if the actor who played Orlock, the evil Count vampire, if that actor who in real life, his name is Max Schreck, what if he actually was a vampire? Director F.W. Murnau had an obsession to create the world's most realistic vampire movie. Meet Count Orlock. The overture to our symphony of horrors. He dug up an actor. I'd like some makeup. Well, you don't get him. Who didn't just play the part. But you're not feeding. No, you're not drinking her blood. He lived it. It's kind of a meta fun story. Have you seen that one? I have not. I'm I, kind of interested now. I know. It's just the, the kind of, I mean... I'm not that interested because I'm not a horror movie guy, but like that's kind of a clever, especially since the guy they choose to play him was William Defoe, which would be great as Orlock. Yeah, you could totally picture him doing that. Academy Award nominees John Malkovich. I will finish my picture. And Willem Defoe. This is hardly your picture any longer. Shadow of the Vampire. How dare you destroy my photographer? Why not the script girl? I'll eat her later. So, obviously influenced lots of other movies, vampire movies from now on, probably find something from Nosferatu. But what do the critics think about this thing? Well, it was ranked 21st in Empire Magazine's 100 Best Films of World Cinema. 
And uh, Roger Ebert also included it on his essay series on great movies. And I really liked how he said this. So here's a quote. He said, is Murnau's Nosferatu scary in the modern sense? Not for me. I admire it more for its artistry and ideas, its atmosphere and images, than for its ability to manipulate my emotions like a skillful modern horror film. It knows none of the later tricks of the trade, like sudden threats that pop in from the side of the screen. But Nosferatu remains effective. It doesn't scare us, but it haunts us. When I read that one, I'm like, I would agree with that. Because it's not, it's not scary in the modern sense, but... yeah. Some of the images stick with you. I think it's very true. So should we go on to our our analysis section? Yes, let's say what we think about this. First off, do you have any history? Had you heard about this movie? I had heard it thrown around. Someone had mentioned it too, and they're like, they knew it from SpongeBob. Oh, really? Um, Because reference once or something like that. Okay. But no, outside of knowing it was an old vampire film, I knew nothing. Yeah, that was pretty much the same for me. It was something that Brian had talked about doing for our cinema selection segment on The Real Trains of Thought, but we Mm -hmm. never got to it. So yeah, that was about the extent, and I knew it was instrumental, the first vampire movie. That's about all I knew about it. So we watched this, mostly we go with our wives. And we have some... We go with our wives. They were happened to be in the room when we watched it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't go to an actual movie theater, although that would have been cool. That would, that would have been nice, yeah. But we record some of our initial reactions, which I don't even remember what I said now, but you have those. Yes. So let's listen to them. All right. Uh, interesting proto-horror vampire movie, I guess. Um, this is not really my genre of expertise, so... Some things I want to kind of mull over, but my first thought right now is like interesting parallels here between plagues and vampirism. If monsters are tend to be our fears personified, I guess that's where this comes from. Anyway, that's my first immediate thoughts. Nick, obviously done in a style that's very different than we're used to. Um, I don't. I, I think the beginning was much more tense and interesting. Uh, it got kind of muddled in the middle to a certain extent. But yeah, interesting pro. Or, yeah, I would think through what I actually like and dislike. I do think the vampire was, in fact, creepy. And uh, Hutter was really happy-go-lucky and not really paying attention to what people were telling him, which was annoying. And in that sense, it reminded me of a Greek tragedy. I also kept attempting to piece together things like Hutter's wife's premonitions and her half-sleepwalking that she did. It was a bit creepy, and I didn't quite understand what it was. So yeah, that that was kind of our immediate impressions. What was there anything that has stuck out with you fresh in your mind since then? Yeah, I I think just the imagery of just Orlock especially, but like like I mentioned, the plot for me got a little muddled, but image wise, it sticks. It's very effective. Orlock is sufficiently creepy. Mm-hmm. That idea of German expressionism that it's more about the visuals are to represent inner realities more than realism. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. We we said we were going to talk about yeah. German expressionism, and I kind of forgot about it. Is I think it's very effective in this case because really, there's some scenes that is just like long drawn out of like horror and looking and you know, and it mm-hmm. and it is a very in some ways single minded yeah. movie. But I think when it works, it works really well. Yeah, I still agree that the first third and the last 
10, 15 minutes are probably the most effective at that for, at least for me. Yeah. It's very strange to say, but yeah, it seems to be most effective when it's the monster or the vampire creeping up on someone. It, is, it, it does it very well. He's really creepy. He's got a great makeup job, folks. Yes. And it's interesting. Orlock is, looks very iconic, but not in like the traditional or the stereotypical Dracula sense. Roger Eberts in his article mentioned him look more like a beast than like a theatrical man. He has these uh, very long spindly fingers. He's very pale, kind of a long nose. Kind of like bat-like pointy ears, but bald head. He always kind of walks with his arms by his side. Very, He looks like a coffin. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, we made a observation as we were watching that he's similar. Not, I mean, he's more creepy, but he's similar looking to both Anton Ego. From, from Ratatouille. Ratatouille. And uh, I would argue grew from... Despicable Me. Despicable Me. Yeah. Uh, that, that The way that he stands, the nose, the, and the paleness, and the... Yeah, the, kind of the, the shape of his body. In yeah. Sense. He's kind of the spindly creature with, like, broad shoulders, sort of. But not super broad, not, like, muscular broad, but, like, he's like a uh, a downward V, but, like, a, a kind of a narrow V. But think about this. From the movie, that sticks with you. I it mean, does. in some ways... Just the images are very, again, I think that's the idea of, I'm not an expert on German expressionism, but the images really stick with you. Mm -hmm. Even some of them, we'll get to talking about the plague as well, but you got, you know, you got images of Orlock just being creepy, the famous um, coffin rising sort of scene. Uh You have some scenes with rats coming out, they're just creepy. This other guy goes kind of insane. Yeah, he, we didn't really talk about that in the synopsis, but there's this character called Nock who seems to have some sort of past history or relationship with Orlock. He's the one that really convinces Hutter, our main character, to go to this guy's castle and make this business deal with him. And then as Orlock approaches the town, he gets kind of like giddy and excited for his presence. It's like he can sense him coming somehow. With the limited, again, as a silent film, you only have those title cards. With the limited dialogue, it was very effective. Like, uh, I think Janelle mentions kind of a Greek tragedy. It just builds this sort of sense of plotting something bad's going to happen, something bad's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. And that's the whole movie. Yeah. Hutter's given plenty of warnings and he ignores a lot of them and yeah. like just kind of laughs them off until he gets into the castle and is like, oh, this guy is crazy. Actually, one other influence I want to mention about Count Orlock, I couldn't help but think of Count Olaf. From a, a series of you know what? unfortunate would, events. And I would not be surprised if that has some reference because, I yeah. mean, um, let me snake it, Daniel Handler mm-hmm. is very well read. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, he's got, he doesn't have quite the monster look Olaf doesn't have, but the same kind of spindliness and the name is pretty similar. Yeah, I I'm would sure not be there's su- surprised inspiration, if there's inspiration there. Mm-hmm. So I think Orlock is very effective. Janelle mentioned also that we had this sort of psychic sort of thing going on. With the, and the, I think that must be some of the German expression. You know, it's more about the idea this this love across across space, across space, and the warning and there's never tragedy. Any, there's never any specific mention uh, or explanation given for why Ellen, the wife, kind of has this sense of foreboding of the, these things about to take place. It just everything's a little super, like not quite supernatural, but not it's not naturalism. Yeah, it's not realism. Right. It's just everything's a little more. Almost like fairy tale-ish, but mm-hmm. horror. And one other interesting aspect that Ebert mentioned in his article, or review, essay, whatever you want to call it, is that one factor of, of this story being told in a silent film is that the characters can't talk their way out of this stuff or, oh. like, talk away the terrors. Like, there's something, they're just kind of trapped in this, like, 
It's oppresses them. It's yeah. The, it's this foreboding sense, this foreboding presence that's just there, and there's no reasoning with it, and it's kind of nightmarish in that sense. Again, not a scary movie by modern standards, but certainly has that kind of creepy haunting factor. Yeah, I think haunting is a good word. It is. And then another thing is we found both we both found interesting was just the idea of where Orlock goes, a plague goes, and it's at least vague to. Me, whether the, because like these rats follow him, and that is also a new thing to this movie that is not in the original book. And I think it's a fascinating idea. Vampires are nominally known as these creatures of death, and yet, and so the, the idea that they kind of bring a plague with them that like death just kind of follows them like a cloud I think that's very interesting and also kind of takes away. I mean. I can see why it's not a big a major factor of Dracula stories, the ones that want, really want to focus on the like the kind of more sexual aspects yeah. of it. But it definitely adds something to the supernatural figure of death. I think it's effective in the movie because not only there's this plotting like he's coming for the wife, but like wherever he goes, there's just sickness, plague, death. Uh-huh. It's hard to know whether it's him doing it or the riots or whatever, but it's there. Yeah. And I guess it also is an interesting feature you know, we've talked about with Nathan on regarding kaiju stuff, yeah. how the monsters tend to embody fears of some other sort. Mm-hmm. You can imagine the the era that this was written in and then even where this movie was filmed in, fears of plagues, the Spanish flu. Was the not influence super- was, had been 1918. This is four years after. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. And that was just a devastating pandemic. I mean, it was, yeah, it's kind of sobering watching this now that we've actually lived through a modern day pandemic. I mean, thankfully, I don't think we had the same death rate that we, they did back then. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's like that hits a little closer to home than it may have four years ago. So those are the two things that stuck with me mostly. Same for me. So now it's time for our questions. Um, so I, I guess you said this is my turn to ask you, you a question ask first. first. Yep. All right. So my first question for you, Nick, is Nock meant to be, we talked about Nock yeah. a little bit ago, this kind of sycophant, is he meant to be a sympathetic character? Oh, interesting. So Nock is this, he reminds me of Igor a little bit from Frankenstein. There's like, okay. master's coming. Uh-huh. He actually says that. Yeah. And he goes kind of insane. I don't think so. Like I can see him take being being seen sympathetically, but I think he's more there just to raise that sense of foreboding, mm. that sense of like that Orlock's presence de-evolves people. Okay. Um, yeah. That he has a he has this kind of bestial effect on this uh, maddening effect on the world in both people and in sickness and everything else. So I would say I think you see him sympathetically, but I'm not sure that's was his. His main, main purpose. His main purpose. That makes sense to me. The thought just crossed my mind because there's certain scenes where the townspeople are looking for someone to blame for the plague and they start chasing Knock around. And he had been locked up at some point and then escaped the jail and was running around. Normally, we would be kind of audiences like to root for an underdog. Yeah. But like, this is an underdog that's serving a, a monster. So. It brings up that idea that I saw somewhere about that some critics attach the idea of the other to this movie. Do you read up on a that? L- a little bit? Yeah, that, they mentioned you know, this in the Wikipedia article. The themes, the themes that just you know, like it's the outsider and he's like hunting him down. Which again, in post World War 
one Germany is probably not the greatest connection. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure how much I agreed with I some of that. I wasn't sure either. Especially since the there were some doubts that, like, the article even expressed some doubt. Like, some people have wondered, felt that uh, Murnau was probably more sympathetic to the downtrodden than... Yeah. But if you're going to make that reading, Knock would be the one you might pull out for that. You might he, point to. Yeah. You could make him sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Count Orlock is never not, sympathetic. No. 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 <laughs> Nothing about him is. Second question. Yes. How did Nock get his name? Right when he was born, the doctor knocked on the door. He was too late. <laughs> Wait, who was too late? The doctor? The doctor. Okay. To deliver the oh, kid. Oh, I see. The baby was... Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. It's well, a very Dixonian name, really. <laughs> I guess so. That's a good point. <laughs> if not a Dixonian character. Yes. Okay. Well, he kind of was, honestly. In some ways, yeah. Okay. Some crazy people. Yes. All right, so what's your question for me, or right. questions for me? Since you asked a sympathetic character question, how do you think we're supposed to feel about Hutter? Because I have hmm. mixed feelings of that protagonist. That is a good question, because... So, do you explain, explain yeah. a little bit about Hutter? Yes, me? please do. So, he's sent to go talk to um, Orlock and make sign these papers so he can buy this abandoned house. Um, but he... At the beginning, he's very happy-go-lucky. Like, he got these flowers for his wife. His wife's all mad at him because he killed her flower. I mean, just weird little scenes. Mm-hmm. And, like, his wife's just, like, bawling. He's like, yeah, I'm having fun. And then he just, like, ignores all the warnings for, like, ever. <laughs> like, he's, like, very dense. Yeah. But simultaneously, at the end, he's worried about his wife. He's raising home. He's trying to be save his wife. So... Are we supposed to say oh, this is a good guy or is it like, no, he's like the fool, like in a fairy tale where he's like, you should have been. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He, maybe you could take him as more of a fool. He, he is very hard to identify with or take seriously, really, in certain ways. Like all the audience is like yelling, screaming at him, what are you doing? <laughs> and in the second half of the movie, he's just kind of frantic. And yeah, in a lot of ways, he seems one of the. Well, I don't want to say he's an interesting character because the actor does a, a, a great job with him, I feel the like. The actor does do a good job. His, his facial that. expressions are fun to watch, whether he's like being happy or he's completely terrified. So here's a question. Is he supposed to be a character, like in a psychological way, or is he just German expressionism? Is he just an excuse for the plot? He feels more excuse for the plot to me, which I think is one reason why we have a hard time identifying mm-hmm. with him. Because there's, I don't really know what Hutter's... Interesting. I mean, he likes his wife. He, he wants <laughs> to provide. Good. I mean, those these are very good basic He's sorts like, of things. Not just an every man sort of thing, I guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess. I guess that's probably what he is. Question two: Why does a vampire need to sign papers to take over an abandoned house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. I wish Rift Tracks had done a version of this. I don't think they have, but I'll have to look for it. But why does he need because Because guys, they like the entire plot hinges on him signing these papers to buy the right, the deed to this abandoned house in another city. Because apparently Germany doesn't have squatters rights. I guess. Yeah, it yeah, I don't understand. That that's my only answer there. All right. Very nice. All right. So, Tim, here's the heart of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Was it worth it? Was this movie worth watching? I would say if you're a film buff, sure. If you're into horror, if you're into vampire stories, sure. It's a good, it's the 
foundation for what these kinds of movies became. Otherwise, nah, I wouldn't say so. I, I think you could skip this one. I leaned toward, as I gave time over the week, I mean, the images do stick with you. So I think if Absolutely. you're, I think if you're casual plus, meaning like you're not just a casual movie watcher, but like you want to challenge yourself a little bit, mm-hmm. I think this one's worth worth an hour and a half. Yes, I don't regret watching. No, it. I don't. Re- no, I enjoyed watching it. I agree with you that I don't think it's everyone's cup of tea. Some people, it, it is a ninety minute silent film, mm-hmm. but. So if you don't mind silent films, it's it's good. It's very good. But yeah, if you're just casual, you just want to watch, eat popcorn, no. Yeah. So is it worth it? A qualified yes. How about that? That worked. Yes. That's our a qualified yes. Hutter says yes. <laughs> don't knock it. Fun <laughs> 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 time. <laughs> Wrong. Okay. Anyway. That was Nosferatu uh, from 1922. So, Tim, where can they find us while they're waiting for episode two to come out? All of our podcasts are at derailedtrainsofthought.com. Be sure to check out not only this podcast, but our main podcast, Derailed Trains of Thought, where we talk about all manner of storytelling for the creator and the consumer. And also the Weekly Hijack, where we have given our instant reactions, much less structured than what we present here on TV shows such as Lost and Babylon 5. And what is our 1932 movie? Next week, we will be talking about Horse Feathers, the Marx Brothers film. This is a fun comedy, so we're going from horror to comedy. And we will have entered the era of talkies. Nice. So we can actually hear it now. That's right. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.